safety plan. Here's Dave Scheib with a message. Well, good morning, TBA. How are y'all this morning? Awesome. Very good. I'm sorry I've got a, a cold today, so I'm probably going to sound like I'm in a well. Um, I read an article this week uh, that quoted a very popular pastor, um, and here's what he said. He said this. He said, God desires to see you flourish in this life. He wants to see you come out of your setbacks stronger, wiser, increased, and promoted. He wants to give you hope in your final outcome and see you come to a flourishing end or a flourishing finish. Now, when I first read this, I thought to myself, well, that sounds great. That's awesome. But the more I thought about it, the more I questioned do I really think that statement is true? Is that, a, is that a true statement? Because I would want to define some of those terms in that statement. I mean, what does he mean by flourish? What does he mean by increased? What does promoted mean? Because I think when I read that statement, sometimes without a little definition, it can be a, mi- a little misleading. Because it sounds like what he's saying is, is if you follow Jesus well, then all your problems just work out, right? Follow Jesus and life will be easy and only good things will follow. But let me ask you a question. Do you think God is more concerned with your happiness or your holiness? Is God more concerned with your happiness or your holiness? Because I think a lot of times our happiness is what we're the most concerned about. And since we're concerned with it, we expect God to be concerned with it as well. Now, I'm not trying to come down on this pastor, which is why I didn't give you his name, but I feel like there's this trend that's been going on in churches for the past decade or so that tries to paint this picture of following Jesus equals an easy life. Accept Jesus, and that means there's no pain or suffering. God will make everything work out in my life, and I'll have everything I ever wanted. Man, I've even been guilty of saying things along those lines. But my experience in following Christ is it it doesn't necessarily work out that way. Things aren't always great. And following Jesus is not easy. Circumstances in my life don't always work out the way that I want them to. Situations in my life aren't always resolved immediately. And sometimes they're not resolved at all. Sometimes things are not as we want them to be. And despite our best efforts... Our circumstances aren't user-friendly. And sometimes I put myself in that position. Sometimes I put myself in the position that I'm in because I've allowed the compromise of sin to enter into my life. Sometimes I find myself in a difficult situation because of the sin of others. And sometimes I'm just in a difficult situation because the Lord wants me there for his purposes. But what I've learned regardless of whatever situation that I find myself in, is that God is still in control of all things. And God has not forgotten me. God still has a path for me to walk. It may not be an easy path, and it may not be the path that I want to walk, but it's the path that I need to walk. And ultimately, God is more concerned with my holiness than he is my happiness. And we see a picture of that In our F260 reading this week, in the letter Jeremiah sends to the Israelites who have been exiled to Babylon, 
So let me give you a little bit of background to help set the context of our passage. If you recall, the Israelites have not been following the commandments of the Lord. They've been worshiping idols, and they've been doing some pretty despicable things. And God sends warning after warning after warning through his prophets, mainly through Isaiah and Jeremiah, that Israel, he says, Israel, if you do not turn from your evil ways, then I will pour my wrath out upon you. Well, they don't listen to the warnings of God. And so God follows through on his promise of punishment. And through King Nebuchadnezzar, the city of Jerusalem is invaded. And a large portion of the Israelites are being taken captive and sent to Babylon. Now, Jeremiah was trapped in the city of Jerusalem at the time. And these false prophets were telling people, don't give up. There's still hope. God will surely send a miracle of deliverance as he has in the past. But Jeremiah's message was, nope. That ain't going to happen. There is no last miracle on the way, no last minute miracle on the way. The judgment of God is falling and it's falling now. Now these people had lost everything. They lost their homes, their property, their wealth. In many cases, they had lost husbands and sons in a battle or wives and daughters to the abusive hands of the conquering soldiers. And now having lost their freedom as well, they were held captive in a foreign nation. Many probably still suffered from the wounds of battle and the abuse by the conquerors. And so they were all probably really gripped with this spirit of hopelessness. I mean, if the people ever needed encouragement, it was then. And so God steps forth to meet their need and he gives them this strong encouragement through his prophet Jeremiah in chapter 29. In chapter 29, he writes to the exiles who had been deported to Babylon. Listen, he gives them the same message of punishment. He's going, punishment is not going to go away. But in the middle of it, we find these remarkable verses of comfort and hope. And being very practical, the Lord instructed the people how to live in the land of their conquerors. And so I think there are some things that we can learn from this letter as well. Like, how do we respond when things don't go the way we want them to go? How do we respond in the middle of our negative surroundings, in the middle of our circumstances that aren't so great? So if you've got a Bible or you've got a Bible app, let's open up to Jeremiah chapter 29. And we're going to start in verse 4. So here's the first thing that we should learn, the first way that we respond when things aren't so great. We have to make the best of things, right? Make the best of things. Look at verse 4 through 6. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives that he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle away. What Jeremiah is telling them is that you need to accept that what is going on is from the hand of God and let God have his way. It does no good to hang on to our sorrow and sit around and weep. Although that might be a temporary, normal reaction to tragedy, it does us no good if we never move on from that point. See, it does no good to be stuck in the question of why. Why me, God? Why did this happen? Why this? Why now? See, there can be a number of reasons as to why you find yourself in a difficult situation. The Israelites were there because of their sin and disobedience. They were being punished by God directly. 
So see a lot of times where we're at because of the sin that's in our lives. Other times we're in a difficult situation because of the sin of others. See, there were obedient Israelites like Daniel and his friends who were following the Lord, but still they were taken captive because of the sin of those around them. So sin has consequences, not just for us, but for those that are around us as well. Then there are times that we're in a tough situation just because the Lord wants us there for his purposes. And sometimes what God does doesn't make sense to us. Listen, it's best if we settle this now. See, he's God and you're not. And God's train doesn't run on your track. He does what pleases him, not what pleases you. He's the potter, we're the clay. His ways are not our ways. And we just have to be okay with that. But the problem is, is if we're always in the why, if we get stuck in the question of why, then we miss out on the what. What does God want to teach me? What is God doing in me? What does God want to do through me? See, I think one of the first steps of turning a tragedy into triumph is to accept the situation courageously and put ourselves in the loving hand of God who doesn't make a mistake. Jeremiah's point is there's not going to be a last-minute miracle. There's not going to be any sudden solutions to the problem. All you can do for now is to make the most of it, do the best you can, trust in the Lord, rejoicing him and keep going on. The second thing we can learn is we have to pray where we're at. Pray where you are. Look at verse 7. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. For its welfare will determine your welfare. Jeremiah is telling the people to pray shalom over the nation where they've been exiled to. Pray for the success of those who are holding you captive. Pray for the prosperity of those who are ruling over you, even if you don't agree with them. Now I would imagine that was not an easy thing for them to do. Probably as hard as Jesus' command to us to love our enemies. It's easy to say, but difficult to do. But that's what they were being asked to do. And the word work in verse 7, it's active. It's an active word. It's not passive. They were to influence and impact by seeking the city's success and prosperity as well as peace among the people. They were to live on mission where God had planted them by pressing on, knowing that God had a purpose for his people in the place where he put them. Have you ever thought that maybe God has you where you're at because he has a purpose for you where you're at? Sometimes I think we're so quick to rush out of our uncomfortableness that we may miss what God has for us right where we are. Have you ever thought about praying for the success of the company you work for at the job you hate? Or praying for the prosperity of the supervisor or boss who lords his power or her power over you? Or maybe seeing that God has you in your miserable job to bring peace and love to your coworkers around you. See, whatever your situation is, we have to pray where we're at. We have to pray and ask God, God, what is your plan for me here? What do you have for me here? What do you want for me here? Pray in whatever situation you're in, in the moment that you're in, and allow God to direct you. 
Here's the third thing we can learn, and it's to beware of the wrong voices. Beware of the wrong voices. Look at verses 8 and 9. This is what the Lord of heaven's army, the God of Israel, says. Do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Do not listen to their dreams because they are telling lies in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. So the Lord warned the people against listening to false prophets because they were, they were preaching a deceptive message. They were proclaiming that the Lord would soon return the exiles to their homeland. This was the same message that they were preaching back in Judah. It was a message of false security, peace, and prosperity. Naturally, this message was well-received by an enslaved, oppressed people who were suffering so terribly. I mean, dreaming and longing for their homeland and for deliverance among their enemies, the people were easily misled by false prophets. Therefore, they needed a very strong warning against being deceived. In no uncertain terms, the Lord warned the people that these false prophets were preaching lies. He had not sent them. They were not true prophets. And man, we are living in the height of a new age, self-help, Oprah type of spirituality where psychics and palm readers have more authority and influence in our culture than the Word of God does. And it isn't just non-believers who are turning to these things for direction. I read this statistic today and blew me, I mean this week, and it blew me away. 30%, 30% of born-again followers of Christ believe in and seek advice from psychics and fortune tellers. There has never been so much deviant, Propaganda directed at so many unthinking people through so many different mesmerizing avenues of media as we have in our culture today. I can't even begin to tell you how dangerous this line of thinking is. Because there's an enemy out there who wants to destroy everything that God is trying to do in you and through you. And he's not stupid. He's very, very smart. And he will tell you that there is a shortcut to wholeness, that there is a shortcut to holiness, that there is no need to go to God to find healing for your soul, that you can do it in your own power and strength, that there is no need or purpose for your suffering, and that God doesn't have the answers, and God doesn't care, and that God doesn't listen to our prayers. Jeremiah warned the exiles not to listen to the wrong voices. Neither should we. The next thing we can learn is we have to take the long view. Have to take the long view. Look at verse 10. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for how long? 70 years. But then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised and I will bring you home again. The Lord promised to restore the nation to bring his people back to the promised land, but it would take their return 70 years. I want you to think about that. Let's admit 70 years is a long, long time. Actually, it's a lifetime. And what that means is many of the exiles are never going to return, but their children and grandchildren would. And the Lord was promising to return their children to the promised land where they would be restored and they would rebuild the nation of Israel. See, we live in a day where everybody wants everything immediately. We want immediate gratification. We don't want to wait for anything. 
I was in the drive-thru at McDonald's the other day with a couple of students from our youth group, and it was taking a little bit of time for us to get through the drive-thru. I think it took about the total of about five minutes from the time we ordered our food to the time that we got our food. What was amusing to me was after two minutes after we had ordered, they started complaining about how long it was taking McDonald's to get our food. And I don't mean a little bit of complaining. I mean, they were really frustrated. To them, this was totally unacceptable. This was the worst McDonald's they had ever been to in their entire life. How dare they have to wait a whole five minutes for a fully cooked hot meal? Now, as ridiculous as that sounds, that's where we're at in our society today. We have instant everything Instant news, instant entertainment, instant communication with anyone, anywhere on the planet. We have instant mashed potatoes. (laughs) And we want God to be instant as well. We want immediate solutions, immediate answers, immediate rescue from our problems. We want God to move and we want him to move right now. And if he doesn't, well, we're going to take things in our own hands which usually makes things worse. Erwin Lutzer says, when we don't wait on God, well, we wish we would have had. Listen, don't get me wrong. Sometimes God does move immediately. Sometimes God does heal immediately. But sometimes things aren't immediate. Some answers take years. Some answers take years to come. Some answers to your prayers will take years. Some will take a lifetime. Some struggles are a lifetime. Some answers we may not get in this lifetime. But that doesn't mean that God isn't working or that he's forgotten us. It just means we have to see things from his perspective and on his timetable. We have to trust in the long-term faithfulness. Listen to me. The long-term faithfulness of God. Paul says this to the church in Corinth. He says, that is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on the things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. Paul is saying that our troubles in this lifetime, they're small and they're short. Even if they last a lifetime, they're small and they're short compared to what awaits for us in eternity. So we don't focus on these troubles that we can see now, but we trust and look forward to what God has promised us in the next life. Listen to me, this is not your home. This is not your home. Do not get comfortable here. Don't get comfortable here. Take the long view and trust in God's faithfulness. The next thing we can do is to get hopeful about God's plans. Look at verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. So this is a verse that gets quoted a lot, right? And I believe that sometimes it gets taken out of the context of what God intended it to mean. So I want us to be really careful as we look at this. Because what I hear 
a lot as people apply this verse to their lives is that when they think about God's having a plan for their life, they naturally presume that the end result of God's plan is their happiness. Or that this verse means God never allows any suffering in their lives. But remember, these words are being spoken to a people who are being punished by the Lord himself for the sins that they've committed. And from their perspective, they could argue, well, these plans aren't very good, and right now all I really see is disaster all around me. So I think we need to define some things. What does God mean by the word good? When he says plans for good, what does he mean? That Hebrew word for good is the word shalom. Okay, And it's translated a number of different ways. In the ESV, it's translated as plans for welfare. In the NIV, it's translated as plans to prosper. In the King James Version, it's thoughts of peace. But the word is also sometimes translated as the word salvation. And what I think the Lord is saying here is, I have plans for your salvation, Israel. You are my chosen people, and I have not abandoned you. I have not forgotten my promise to Abraham. So my plans for you are plans to rescue you. But this is the way I'm going to rescue you. Here's how I'm going to save you. It's through your captivity. It's through your suffering. I'm going to break you of your pride so that you'll turn back to me. Again, let me ask you, is God's goal your happiness or is it your holiness? See, I think a lot of time we spend chasing happiness. But God's desire for our lives is not a shallow happiness, but a deep holiness. In other words, God's goal for our lives is for us to be Christ-like. The goal of our life is to take on the character of Christ. That brings joy, which is vastly superior to happiness. But following Christ also involves sacrifice and self-denial. It's trusting God in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, trusting that he is in control of all things and he knows exactly what he's doing and he is mindful of us and our suffering. Trusting in him even if it all seems crazy and doesn't make any sense. Pressing into him deeper and deeper, seeking out his face in the good and the bad that happens and knowing that his plans for us are the best plans for us. See, God does desire to give us a hope and a future, but that hope and future are in him and his plans for our lives. But we have to seek him. We have to seek him out in everything, which brings us to the last thing we need to do, and that's to seek the Lord above all. Look at verse 12. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. And I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you and bring you home again to your own land. See, the Lord promised to hear the prayers of his people. However, the people had to first call upon him and seek him with all their hearts. That's why they had to remain in Babylon. Because God's discipline needed to have time to work. Through their suffering, through the exile, the hearts of the people would be made soft. They would be broken of their pride. And they would cry out to the Lord for deliverance. If they were allowed to return to their homeland too early, their hearts would still be hard. 
and stubborn against God, and they would still trust in their own power, the power of the flesh to deliver them. And they would still live wicked lives and worship false gods. The Scott, so God says, I'm going to use Babylon to, to break you. I'm going to use captivity to break you. In their suffering and distress, they would seek him and ask him to save them. And then they would recommit their lives to him. They would turn from their wickedness and their false gods and dedicate themselves to following the Lord and obeying his word. So whatever our circumstances are, whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, here's what I know. We can make him, that's Jesus, we can make him Lord of our lives and seek his kingdom first and his righteousness first. See, God instructs us to make the most of our circumstances good or bad. Whatever hardships or misfortunes we confront, we are supposed to stand strong in him and bear witness to the strength that he places in us. Because I know that God will always provide for his people. He will always give us strength to conquer whatever confronts us. Even when we make mistakes and bring bad circumstances upon ourselves, But I think we have to seek him with all that we are. We have to seek him with all of our hearts and we have to turn to him for all things. So as the band comes up, what I want to do is I want you to listen to the encouragement of God's word to be both content and more than conquerors in whatever circumstances you face. Paul says this to a Roman church who is being persecuted and dying every single day for their faith. And so here's what Paul says to them. Listen to this. He says, can anything, can anything separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or if we're persecuted or if we're hungry or destitute or in danger or even threatened with death? Because the scriptures say, for your sake, we are killed every day. We're being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all of those things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. So I'm convinced that nothing, nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Not death, not life, neither angels nor demons, Neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness, God. For your faithfulness that is without end, God. I thank you that your word is true, Lord, and that your promises are true. And then, God, regardless of whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, whether it's good or bad, whether life is going well or we're suffering through some things, Lord, I know that you have not abandoned us and that you never forget us and that you're always mindful of us of us, Lord. So help us to turn our lives and our thoughts and our actions to you, Lord. Help us to seek you out in all that we do and everything that we do, God, and trust you 
for the future that you have for us. A future that's of hope. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.